Good evening to our neighbors and listeners coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown. You are listening to the award-winning Germantown Info Hub Radio Hour. I'm the community reporter, Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. And my name is Maleka Fruin, and I'm the community organizer for the Germantown Info Hub. I live here in Germantown with my family. The Info Hub Radio Hour explores everything happening in Germantown and the city of Philadelphia and covers them in an hour or less. You can check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org, Twitter and Instagram at gtowninfohub, or on Facebook at Germantown Info Hub. seen some of his galactic totems and light-filled sculptures on a Germantown sidewalk. Or you may know his partner, Philly's spoken word legend Ursula Rucker. But Anthony Carlos Molden is building his own artistic world here. He's a mixed media artist working with found objects and many different artistic techniques to create an expansive collection of work that can be seen now at the Imperfect Gallery in Germantown. He's taken his varied life experiences and created a unique art alchemy. Join us in conversation with Anthony at the Imperfect Gallery right before his solo exhibit opened. He'll take us through his life, his practice, and his process. I'm Anthony Carlos Molden. I'm a painter sculptor, born in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and now based in, well, I spent a lot of time in, in New York, but I'm based in Philly. Been here about eight years, and love it here. Germantown, Philly, to be exact. I, was, I did construction for 20 years. Um, before that, I was a chef. Yeah, I spent, I spent like, I guess I was in, the, in, in restaurants since probably 19, 18. No, my first, one of my first jobs was in a restaurant. I was just a busboy when I was 16 in LA. That's where I grew up, actually, even though I was born in Iowa. Well, cooking and actually cooking and construction, they, you know, they're alchemy. So you can see a lot of that alchemy in, in my work. I got a scholarship to the Pasadena College of Art Design when I was in junior high. So I started getting exposed to the professional level art really early. And that's when I lived in, uh, I grew up in uh, Altadena, California. And so from age six until 16, I lived in, in LA. And uh, while I was in high school, I got a, I, I got a grant or a scholarship for uh, Pasadena College of Art and Design, which is a really hard design school to get into. I started doing, I started learning about figures and body from uh, drawing comics at that time. Like, write about that. If you ever want to learn how to draw bodies, go study comics. Because they, I mean, 
they make they try to make sure when a muscle's off, everybody notices it. That's the thing. They they have to be really. People don't think about this with comics. It's very technical, but they have to be specific with the muscle placement. You know, because the muscles are in action. Even if people don't know how to draw, they know when a muscle is not in the right place. They just your mind tells you. But uh, so that helped me with. I would say that was an early helper with uh, doing portraits for me, which I love doing. And uh, then the design school, I think I, was, I wasn't really intending, uh, maybe illustration, but I wasn't really intending on being a designer. Um, but I got that scholarship, so I went. And it was fun, that changed my life because that school had the massive library. I'd just go sit in there after class and look at all these magazines from all over, the design magazines from all over the world. And uh, the teachers, some of the teachers I had were, were famous uh, set and car designers. Um, like one of, this one teacher I had, I, he designed sets for like Blade Runner, Ghostbusters, Alien, different pieces of those sets. He brought them, that blew my mind. You know, imagine seeing that as a kid, your favorite movies and this guy's bringing the sets and said, hey, I made these. They, I was the only black kid in the class, in any of those classes, so they were really very encouraging. They were like, you should really, you know, because they saw that I had, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I had the cleanest style, but I had, I had something, just like now, I have something that's different. And it kind of, because maybe my brain is wired different, or just the experiences I had. So they make me look at simple things differently. So those teachers saw that, and they they were very encouraging, and they told me, "Hey, there's there's not very many black people in this in these in this world, you know, in these in this design world. So, or this set set making. And I I didn't even put together that I ended up being a set painter, set designer. Years later, I didn't go to school for any of that. I just fell into that job in New York. I was a uh, first year a cook. <laughs> Probably have my janitor and all this other stuff in New York, and then you get to those. But yes, I did. I was a, I was a scenic in uh, the in the mid '90s up until the 2000s, and uh, I mainly worked for on videos and movie sets, and um, I did a couple of theaters. I don't even remember the theaters. I remember building a whole subway platform in one because we were we scenics. We make. If it has to look like this room's decayed and rusty, that's what we did. And then I got into, I actually got into uh, being a carpenter from that because every time you're a scenic, the carpenter's right next to you building the set. While you're painting, you're watching them do these thousand cuts. Later, uh, my brother called me, asked me if I want to open a restaurant with him in Atlanta because I had been a chef for 20-some years. And uh, I said, bet. So I went down there in 2003, and me and him built, that's where I learned to be a carpenter, building that restaurant. <clears throat> we hustled up the money. We did uh, property management and real estate. That's how we made the money for the restaurant, which was also a nightclub. I locked myself in that place every night, and I would like just start, I, you know, that's where the memory of those carpenters came in. But that's how I taught myself, and the scenic, I learned how to be a scenic from um, a woman named Betty Martin. She's from Paris. She lived in New York. Uh, so she brought me on. We were friends. We were all friends in the music scene, which my cousins were there. Uh, my cousin Jalil is in TV on the radio. Um, 
but we were all roommates and we just had this group of eclectic musicians and artists and friends and shit and uh betty so that was she she went to school she actually was classically trained in paris for scenic and then she uh some she had somebody wasn't somebody didn't show up for the job and it was an important job and i said yeah i got you and I didn't know, I knew how to house paint. I was a master house painter at that point. I had been doing that since I was 15. I said, I can house paint, but I have never done the scenic stuff. And she's like, oh, I, I can teach you. So she taught me, you know, and we spent the next few years doing that on these crazy jobs, different videos and, and stuff. I learned it's best to avoid meeting your favorite celebrities from that. On the New York hustle, it's like, which is just hand to mouth. You make a lot of money on those jobs, but then you may not work for like two months. Or you may not get your check for two months, you know? So it's like you're always ending up in these situations where you gotta keep jumping around and stuff. So when my brother asked me if I wanted to go to Atlanta and open a nightclub restaurant, I said, yes. And um, we went down there, I'd never been there before, but I had never been to New York when I moved there. I just go. I'm not as, as footloose and fancy free as I sound. It's just that, you know, life puts you in situations and then you just can make choices. And it's like, so a lot of times I'll, if it's something to learn, I'll take the risk of embarrassment or looking like a fool or failing. If I know that there's something that I really want in that to learn. So I was like, I went down there. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach myself how to use these tools. I'm gonna do all this stuff. And it was rough, but I, I, uh, I met my children's mother down there. We have three daughters together. They, they're actually back in Atlanta now. Just went, we just went down and visited them. And uh, hopefully they'll come up for the show. And uh, so Atlanta was cool. And then I came back to New York in like 2008 and was there until 2016. And then I moved here and met Ursula Rucker as you know, my partner. I met her actually, our friend of ours introduced us online before I, before I moved here, but I was already thinking about coming to Philly. I didn't even know she lived here or anything. Why were you thinking of coming to Philly? Um, you know what, places, the same way I end up any, anywhere, the place starts showing up, it'll be like, this may be coincidence, probably my brain just, it's time to go and this is where you're going. But I'll start seeing the place on commercials, people walking down the street, people will be mentioning it. And then I just decided one day I'm gonna go. And uh, Philly kept, was all over the place. And for some weird reason, I had never been to Philly living this close to it in New York, living in New York for 20 something years. I don't know why. And, uh, and I loved all the products that came out of Philly, all the music and art and everything. <coughs> so, uh, me and Ursula started talking, and then slowly, and then she, then I started coming down here, and she started showing me around Philly, and I loved it right away. And uh, then I moved here, like six months later or something, and uh, now I'm here, and I love it. And Philly's rough and whatever, but I, I, I love it. You, you would have to pay me honestly. You'd have to pay me a lot of money to leave to move out of Philly. Like, you'd have to pay me a real lot of money to move back to New York, you know. And I'm not even mad at New York. It's annoying because it's just so money-driven, but um, I love Philly. It's like you, 
the people here, I've made the best friends here. Um, get the most support here. Made the most money I've ever made on art here. Um, you can build from the ground up here, and that's all I want to do at any time. I don't, I don't, that's, I want to, like, just let me build what I'm doing. And Philly does that, and they love it if you can, if you can do it, you know. Mm -hmm. Not saying they'll make it easy for you. And I, 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 I love that. I can respect that. And because um, it's like things get watered down because people are adverse to any sort of challenge. And I'm like, you can pretend like there's not going to be a challenge in life, but there's, it's, life is always going to be challenging. And not, I mean, not always. I don't know about always, but it is right now. People ask me how I do these things with this stuff. And, you know, with the paintings and the sculptures. How do you even get the ideas and stuff? And I'm like, you have to, you have to dive into things that you fear. You know, whatever that, in whatever way that is for you, because it's not even necessarily what it is maybe, but it's like the action of doing it strengthens your, your spirit, strengthens your mind, and then allows you, because people really believe that there's nothing new left under the sun. And I'm like, maybe not, but, but you can definitely reconfigure it to where it looks like it's something new under the sun. And that's what I do with these. You know, these are reconfigurations of, of stuff that everybody's familiar with. Stuff that's laying around, trees, uh, pieces of, of uh, reflect, car reflectors, um, umbrellas, that's what that red thing is right there. You know, it's like all this stuff is stuff laying around, but for me, when I see it, if I see a pile of stuff, I'm like, hmm. Whoa, what's in there that might be cool to to turn into gold, you know? And the journey of turning it into something else. That's what the first few times that I did that, that I think that changed my life. And and gave me a new way of looking at life. Not that I mean I I always I thought the other way was okay too, but it was like just just noticing things and looking at stuff that would have been garbage to me and, and like now it's like important. And I'm like, I'm gonna show people how this is important and, and then put it in some work and then actually make it, you know, people love that piece and all of that stuff was garbage. Everything on there is scraps of garbage. But people love that thing. It's on more Mother's album cover now. So you had said the word alchemy before and I love the word alchemy. Talk to me a little bit about the alchemy of this. I think there's a rhythm to it now that happens naturally. Like, uh, like the way I'm going to describe it is the way that it generally happens each, each time I put one of these pieces together. Even if it's just, whether, no matter how different they are. I'll be like, okay, it's time to make a new piece. And then there's something, some major, there's always the, the major, the, the, the platform, the, the set is the, is the board. And then some board or something shows up. Some piece of wood shows up or some weird, like, look at that. That's a piece of an old Ikea uh, shelf that somebody had. I saw it laying on the corner and it was like banks. They clearly had taken a hammer to it to get it out of the house. But I was looking at it and it's like this little chip knocked out of it right here. I was like, that looks so intriguing to me. Just this little weird ass little chip and then that little chip so I took the board home 
And then it sat there for like two years, literally, just over there in the corner. I'm like, I should throw that out. No, wait, I like that little curve, though. And then finally I did something, and it's like it turns into this. But it's like that little, the, the flaws of the stuff, you know. In general, if it has some weird flaw in it, because it's like, you know, you know, too much uniformity makes it hard to see. It makes it hard to see any possibilities in the stuff, you know. At least to most to most people, I would think. But when you see something like that, it gives it more character, just like us, just like humans. And then it's something to work with. Then it sparks your imagination. I think. Oh, also, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my style came out of uh, necessity from lack of help, from lack of direction from people, and just following, but I always had some drive, so I was, you know, I just kept experimenting, and then eventually direction and, and form, structure comes, if you keep at it, well, even if you don't have guidance. Artist mentoring is like a real issue. They're so, it's because of, of what I was talking about with you earlier off, off microphone, of people's personal fears, they fear you're going to take their spot. They fear you're going to do better than them. They fear that you're not going to pay proper respect to them once you get big or whatever. There's like a, it depends on the person, but these are different. I've, I've talked to different artists. I try to like pry the story out. I try to like do art activism and, and bringing us all together. So when I see stuff like that, I, I don't just let it slide. I try to like find a way to engage them about it, even if it's not happening to me. I'll be like, why'd you do that to them? You know, I'll try to find a gentle way to engage it because people are really, they don't like, people don't like being challenged right now. It's, just, it's like we've gotten very, very uh, lame about that, about somebody coming up and telling us the truth about our actions or what, or, or, what, or even our work. The, the brutal opinions I had to take to get here that I asked for, I asked for them. And it hurt my feelings, some of them, but then after a while, you, you get beyond that. Now this piece is the longest piece of my whole life. I, it's, it's taken me 11 years to finish this piece. Almost 11 years. Because I just couldn't, I started in New York. And then, you know, you, it's like different phases. I added more and learned more and changed different things. But it's actually figures in this. Let me see, I'll hold it up for you. Do you think you can describe the figures? <clears throat> so there's two figures, that maybe they're dancing, mm -hmm. and male and female. And all of this whole thing is spiraling to this point. I see that much. And uh, this is the male figure. I'm, ordinarily, I wouldn't even point this out, because I like to let people, if they don't see the figures, they don't see the figures, but they see something else. So I just like to let people find it. And then sometimes people may not see the, the, the figures for years in different pieces. And I like that, like a little surprise. So but, how did you keep adding things on? Well, first I did this. I found um, there was a big table. This is kind of like a hollow table under this. So you see the size. Those are the table's top size. Um, then I took a, if you look at the back, you see that I did some metal, metal work, framing this shape around the whole table. 
And then uh, this is uh, a mattress top. You know, that kind of to make it softer. And then I just started, and I, I never really have a plan. I just, I like to let the universe give me a story. So that keeps it interesting for me, you know. A lot of artists don't admit that they're bored with their stuff because it's like there's a security. For one, they want you to do the same thing over and over again. Some people, it's part of their meditation, it's part of their story to, to do a similar pieces. Some people are just doing it as a business aspect because they know that this sells, so they'll keep doing this other thing. They'll keep doing something over and over again. But for me, and and as and no matter who you are, there's something repetitive in your art that you can't. That's hard to escape, even even if you can't escape. It. Like like, if I point something out in all these pieces, you'll <laughs> you'll never unsee it. From now on until until the last piece I make in my life, you'll be like, okay, I'm looking for, I pointed out to Ursula and now she can't unsee it. But all artists have it. I, and I look for, it's like a tick you have. It's like, oh, okay, they always lean to the left right there, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, I, it's like I want it to be fun because I'm, I'm not here, I'm not, once I remove myself from the, um, from the kind of corporate part of, of art, it's like, okay, well, why am I doing it then? It's like, I mean, it's like, I'm not doing it for that. I know that. So I'm making this art. Am I trying to make it to fit into a construct? Because if I am, then I would not do this piece. I would do something that people like and then just do that over and over again in slightly different form. But then I would go mad. Because it's not enough. Nobody's entertaining me enough on this planet. Nothing's entertaining me enough. And everybody's, we all, we all are going to, if, if you're realistic with yourself out there, you find that you're not, it's like, it's just the state of evolution. We're reaching the bottom of something before we go on to the next thing. And it feels like it's uh, closing in the board. It's like, oh man, nothing's exciting. There's all this stuff is the world's boring, the world's falling apart. And I'm like, we gotta make, we gotta make it exciting. So how, the only way I can do that is to take chances with my art because I'm an artist. So that's the form I would take. If I was bicycling, if I was a stunt rider, I would take chances there. If I was doing some other stuff, I would take chances there to, to push it forward. But I'm here. So I'm not gonna do, I just, I just wanna keep finding stuff that's challenging and, you know, because the evolution from this, it's like, imagine making this piece, you see how it's not in the light, I don't have the spotlight on it. When I have the spotlight on it for the show, this piece is gonna seem completely different to you and you're gonna see, it's gonna make more sense. It's but, gonna bring out more of the layers? Yeah, it'll bring out the layers, there's a lot of reflective stuff going on in the background too that'll come out. And then it'll be much, and then I'm going to clean it. So it'll just make more sense. But without the lights on it, it's kind of like, it's cool, but it's like, a, what? There's a lot, it doesn't make as much sense. So that's what led me to doing those light sculptures. Because I had a few I had like several shows over a few years in a row where they just, no matter what I did or said, I'd bring the light. They still wouldn't light my piece right. I've, I re-transformed this stuff. It's so, it's thorough on purpose. Like I'm, it's like I have to, I'm not just gonna take a bunch of stuff and just stick it on there. 
I'm like, you're not going to walk up to my piece and say, oh, you're just sticking a bunch of stuff on the knob. You're going to go up to that piece and, and know that I put artistry and thought into how I manipulated those materials. And if it doesn't reach that level, no one sees it. So when people can like, when they, when they home in, when they actually take the time to home in and, and see something, I, I really appreciate that. I want to go talk to that person. I know it seems like a nightmare right now, but it's, we're going to get through this and then be different. Hopefully better. We'll either get through it or we won't. That's two choices. But if we get through it, we won't be like this anymore. I was out for like from the end of September until January. Just fighting every day to breathe and, and whatever, you know. It was like every day, all day doing that stuff. But I wasn't in the hospital. I went, went to the hospital three times, maybe four times, but I wasn't in the hospital like that. I didn't have a tube down my throat or anything. But definitely if they hadn't got me to the hospital that time, the first time, I would almost, I wouldn't have made it to, to this moment. I already appreciated life. It made, it definitely, it got me into my body in a way that I still am present in, you know, internally, like looking because when when you're like when you're fighting for you for to breathe and and get your lungs back to normal you're, you're looking at every minute change in your body it's like you're in here instead of out here so you're just feeling when you wake up you're like feeling like, how's my throat feel how does it feel to swallow you know can i breathe how much phlegm is in my in my that's like your whole day and then when you come out of that and you really you still like I, like i said i still now i feel i'm different in my body still like i reach i'm back 100 percent now but it's like i still check in with my lungs i still feel my lungs like i'm actually trying to feel you know it's like people don't spend time trying to because you can feel your internal organs if you the more you practice it the more you can do it. Like you can feel it inside, you can feel your stomach. Think about when your stomach's hungry, how that draws you into your stomach and you feel that. But you can do that with your lungs and with all this stuff, you know? It's like, it, it's, it, was, it was more of a, doing that every day made me start to, to, to notice the actual sensations of feeling like my lungs, you know? like feeling them expand and contract and but it's like and then that's stuck it's still here so now every day it's like it, that it's like you get a body awareness from surviving that because you were spending so much so much freaking time literally every swallow all day for months on end you know worried about that damn the next swallow because it was such an ordeal just to swallow so you're like you're checking yourself for the first sign of that feeling. When you get, when you know you're about to swallow, I mean, it sounds so weird, right? Just me describing it, but this was the, the, the way it was. And then you're checking, you're trying to feel before that swallow if there's gonna be like pain or if it's gonna be like clogged or whatever, you know? It's like all day, it was like a never ending nightmare job to stay alive in my mind. I don't even know if it was all that, that deadly you know, at some of those points, but it just felt like that. It was like, oh God, you know, and like, am I ever going to breathe normal again? Am I ever going to stop spitting? But I, I would say that combined, you know, because I really don't, I'm, 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 I'm finally at the point I've been wanting to reach maybe, I mean, for years since I became aware of, of, of some other level of things. 
of not of truly not caring like about being part of any system with my art like right now I'm, it's like it's like i'm in it's like i'm out in the on open sea right now because i'm like hey this is the first time i've ever truly where i'm like i'm in command of this ship i don't care and when i say i don't care i mean it's like to have a, a relaxedness about whether people accept your work and once you once you know and accept that, then you don't. Then that's all you need to know. You don't have to. Then you know you don't need. You don't have to have a system. You don't have to have a critic talking about your work. You don't have to be in a gallery or museum. Uh, you can still do all that, and you can still achieve that. But it's like you could. You have. You have a commodity at that point that you that you can do something with yourself. If you if you like think if you think of a good way to do it if you think of a good way to put it out you can go present it to people in the, on your own and then you'll stop worrying after you do that long enough you'll stop worrying about whether these people accept your work or whether they're going to help you or whether they're going to let you show it in their spaces or whatever you know and, does it uh, feel liberating yeah and like I said I've made more money on my own here than I ever have being part of any of the systems I was part of. And I'm not getting rich, but I'm making a living, you know, selling art. I can pay bills with it and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like when my daughters need money, I'd sell some pieces and <laughs> get them, like, how much do you need? <laughs> and then I go, I literally do that sometimes. I'm like, how much do you need, girls, for this, you know? And then I go, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take this painting, this painting, I'm gonna start pushing these and get them what they need. And that's and then the other stuff I can I can work my way. This is like my my newest biggest piece, which I guess I just finished this like three weeks ago. And I feel like this piece is important to me because it's kind of like a mix of a lot of the different. I have I have people may people would call it a couple of different styles but I call them zones because they're not really a different style it's just a different area of the same style and this piece to me is like the culmination of all the stuff I've been teaching myself with colors intensity of color uh, texture use of materials use of like re reflective like prismatic materials like uh, magnifying lenses and stuff to get to get an effect on the light use of glitter as a push and pull with light and uh and a success and I call a successful use of glitter is when people stop thinking about it being glitter and they're just thinking about it as a material of the painting which I, I feel like I've achieved for the most part and um because that's what it really is people are just identify it with their childhood so they, they can't stop considering it childish. But that's because they don't know how to use it like I did. Use of, you know, use of simple stuff, because this is just tape, packing tape. I mean, this is the shower, a, a bath mat. This is off a chandelier, glass pieces off the chandelier. But really, and this is just some mylar paper that they use to make those balloons and stuff and caulk it's really not it looks complicated but it's really not it's just the way that i like 
Because I try to turn it into, for me, when I'm like in it like this, it's, I'm like, I want it to be an amusement park. And now that I, you could probably see it better now that I'm saying it, because it's like, it's like it's, if you're at Coney Island, it's like there's rides. You know, I go to this area, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm over here in this, doing this. It's, that makes it fun for me and keeps it from being boring. But really, as overall, there's not a lot of, it looks complex, but it's not as complex as it looks, as material-wise. There's like four or five materials. But I feel like this piece was like, I'm like, okay, I got, I finally was able to use all the elements, wield them properly the way I wanted to. Not just, you know, still learning, so I'm kind of wielding it, but I'm still, new things are still coming in and showing me stuff. But this integration like, of so many of your techniques. Mm -hmm. So I was really happy about that piece. And I made that one to hold Ursula's mom's ashes during the funeral. They were in a container, but it was like, you know, there would, cause we were, um, we were dealing with all the all the, the stuff we had to deal with and we're like at the place and Ursula was like, um, I don't know which urn to get. And I said, I can make one. Mm -hmm. And it was just a temporary hold holder. Like it, what they weren't poured in, but it was just the, the case was put inside of it mm -hmm. for the funeral. It's called Palmina. This is a tribute piece from my friend Ophir, Agassi. He was a painter. Yeah, painter, sculptor. Um, he died, when I was fighting COVID, he died of cancer. Sudden, he found out he had it in October, and he passed away in January. I didn't know for, I didn't find out for a year. But it messed me up. It messes you up to find out your friend passed away like a year before, and you're thinking they're still moving around and shit. And then you missed all the, the period. You have grief right then, but you missed the period where you could communicate with everybody about it. And uh, so you're just kind of floating there by yourself. So I just made this piece and talked to him a lot. And uh, I met him and we both were in this or got free studios on 42nd Street through this organization, Chishama in New York. And we were the first two artists in there we met. We were like rolled up a big fat ass blunt. <laughs> Kicked it right immediately. Immediately. And we were friends forever after that. He bought he was the first major purchaser of one of my works, actually. My first big art buyer. There's the elements of the whiz. I actually the whiz was probably one of the first major influences on my work because the way they did the sets and everything is much like I do my work. They just took different parts of, of stuff, you know, of refuse laying around, and then they they made it part of the sets. People's costumes and everything was different, you know. So I, that probably was the first real exposure I had to mixed media type of art creating in a way that I took notice of. And this is definitely, you can see the direct correlation with the, well, take your pick, The Wizard of Oz or The Wiz, but I say The Wiz because that's definitely the tone that I'm living in. Kind of like the final boss. You work your way back here. I'm tricking people. I can't tell you all the things, but it's like when you come, 
when people come walking through, it's like a series of tricks because I have the way I position certain things. It's like you can't see it when you come in. And there's so much. I have a lot of work in this show. So it's like you come in and you're and the first half is like satisfying. I'm not bragging. It's, it's decent work. When my work was crap, I said that. So they'll be like, which is kind of a distraction. I'm baiting them. So they're coming in. Oh, this is great. This is great. And then I have that piece hidden there, and you won't even see it when you first come through there. You know, it's like you're coming through and you come down the hall and you're still looking at pieces. And then you start looking at these, and then that's when you notice that. And then you're, it's like a surprise. I mean, that's my fun. It's like I like to make it entertaining. It's paintings and it's art and it's sculpture, but it's like, why can't it be entertaining too? You know, why can't this be fun? It's like, it's like I'm... I don't want to go to a show and be bored. That piece that I showed you, the uh, the abstract that I said was the culmination of all my pieces, there's lights all through that. But I was so satisfied with that piece as it was, I, did, I cut the, the cord off. I was like, this doesn't need light. And maybe in like, whoever buys it, I'll call them in like 15 years and say, you know, you can, you can turn that on. It doesn't need lights. You know, clearly I'll use the lights whenever I want. But it's like that. It's like, it's like, it's not, to me, lights are just another material equal to any other material. Paint, or fabric, or caulk, or glue. And you use it, if you step over the line, it'll be too much, just like any one of those. The show's gonna be up for a nice long time through July, and by appointment through August. And I'll be around, I'll be in the gallery a lot. So I'll be painting while I'm hanging out here. Golden show will be officially up at Imperfect Gallery until July 6th, but you can message Anthony directly on Instagram at Anthony Carlos Molden and make an appointment to see the art throughout the rest of July and August. This has been Maleka Fruin for the Germantown Info Hub Radio Hour. Cliveden is not just an old stone house, but a vibrant living space that addresses current issues and strives for a better future. It was constructed in 1767 as a summer residence for Benjamin Chu, but it also provided employment for black individuals and white immigrants from Europe. 
Victoria Bass, the engagement coordinator at Cliveden, plays a vital role in helping people comprehend the community they inhabit while acknowledging its history, including the enslaved individuals who serve the True family. Cliveden has always been connected to the community, but its outreach has expanded since Bess joined the team. People from all over the world come to enjoy its five-acre green space and learn more about historic preservation and culture. Bernard Groneveld, a neighbor and independent community reporter, had a conversation with Victoria Bess regarding the Cliveden House. Cliveden, or Cliveden, both pronunciations are used, is more than just an old stone house in a park on five and a half acres along Germantown Avenue at Johnson Street. It is a living and changing space, focused on its history, but also engaging with current issues and working toward the future. The house was completed in 1767 as the summer home for Benjamin Chu, a prominent lawyer. He and his family used the house during the summer as a place to escape the heat and yellow fever epidemics surrounding their main residence in the city. The Chews employed servants at the site. Some were African slaves, some were free Africans, and some were white immigrants from Europe. I talked with Victoria Best, Cliveden's engagement coordinator, about Cliveden's past, its present, and the future. My task is to really uh, figure out how that we can uh, get near neighbors, community members, to really understand more about uh, the community that they live in um, and some of the historic spaces in that space. Um, so that's what I do. Um, I help people come here and know about the, their community. Is that easy or is, are people eager to learn about the community? Or? They're eager to learn about the community, but the other aspect of it is the historic part of the community. And some people are eager, some are angry. Um, some want to don't understand the history of their own community. The, why it's even called Germantown. Well, essentially before a lot of times places like um, Clifton would be considered to be like a plantation because they wouldn't didn't know what it really stood for, what it really was. And so Clifton or Clifton, um, however you choose to pronounce it, was really just a summer home for the true family. And so this wasn't a place where there were plantations where people um, tilled and milled and got cotton and tobacco and different things like that. This was a place of, um, how can I say, people to escape the and how, how do you overcome that anger? By doing what we do, sharing the story of the enslaved people that stayed here or that um, serviced the true family in any way and paying homage to them, you know, acknowledging their services. Um, oftentimes, most people that were here, like I said, the people of color were enslaved, but there was a family that stayed here even after their time and because the connection that they had with the family and the property itself. And so I think, again, that's important for a lot of the um, near neighbors, um, especially those who are of African-American descent, to kind of understand that this space in general is a space, a green space that they can enjoy now. And it's a space that was before kept by African-American people um, and what their actual purpose here was. And the fact that there is another space down the street you know, there was a space for the Underground Railroad stop. So just really making connections, again, with all of the things in your community and where does Clapton fit in it. Um, moving forward, and not just to say, when we say staying stuck in the old ways, um, not to say that people should become complacent or accepting, but just 
understanding the circumstances of a time and how can we make um, better changes and efforts in our time. Um, since I've been here, we've had the Girl Scouts, uh, Girl Scouts here. We do stuff with the church, so I would definitely say outreach has definitely expanded. Um, but Clifton has always had a connection with the community in its own way, um, but it's definitely expanded since I've been here. Our gates are always open to the community. Um, as long as the gate is open, anyone can come in. But when we talk about um, organizations like the Girl Scouts or um, small grassroots organizations or things like that, we open up our space, which we're sitting in now, which is the barn, so they can use this. We also use this as an event space, and we open up our five acres of green space. And so not only just uh, learning about history of the place, but preservation um, and culture as well. And so see, these are wonderful opportunities for organizations like the Girl Scouts, where they can be in nature and learn to grow, um, yoga, uh, baby word play, things like that that we've done. Um, and within this last year that I've been here, and so again, I'm just really excited about it. I hosted myself through my nonprofit, as well as being a community engagement coordinator, um, an entrepreneur summit and back to school supplies drive. So people were able to come here and get free resources on how to even start their own businesses in the community get school supplies um, and my organization is just one we have other organizations like the rump foundation they come and they give out book bags uh, turkeys just a slew of things so this space is always open to the community and small organizations to be able to um, help them grow and reach more people as well so it's not just a building it's also a little nature in the middle of all the all the houses there. yeah i call it a little oasis and we always think about the arbory arboretum as the you know only aesthetic place or the arboretum but this place is so beautiful um it is definitely does not sit on as many acres as the arboretum but um the five and a half acres that we do have the green space is just it's wonderful and i think that it takes people out of that urban setting when they come here so the Clapton House is owned by the National Historic Trust, so that is how this um, organization is funded. Um, grants like the Pew Grant um, is how community engagement has been funded, and that's been something that is not just funded for um, museums, but a lot of the community engagement um, throughout the city is funded through state programs. Um, so. We constantly are fighting to get monies to be able to do more stewardship programs for uh, local organizations and bring people in. Where do the visitors come from? They just come from the neighborhood or they're tourists? Everybody. They come from everybody? There is really, being here, You'll I found that there's no, um, there's no limit to where people will come from. People have come from around the world, people have come from down the street, people can be on vacation, um, and they can vacation in their own city and decide that they wanted to explore those places in their city. And then we just have some near neighbors that didn't even realize that we were here that sometimes will come by for the first time and they'll become reoccurring parishioners that they receive more often. So it's definitely been um, a place that's not limited to a specific crowd. You have an annual reenactment of the Battle of Germantown. And now it's a silent, no gunshots. Was that a decision, a hard decision to reach, or how did that come about? Well, through community engagement, through being connected to our near neighbors and our community, we want to be more conscious of how the things that we do affect the community. And so in doing a real um, 
deep, intense survey and talking with um, people, residents, organizations, it just seemed more beneficial to maybe not utilize the um, guns, as people say, um, in the reenactment. Um, it has, was a part of it for a long time, but the festival still um, is able to share the, the message and, and really be an attribute to the community without the, I want to say the, um, the noise of gunshots or um, cannons going off um, and just being more conscious of how those things can trigger people in our local communities with PTSD and re returning from wars and things like that, you know, and the gun violence that they already suffer through on a daily basis. So we don't want to be an attributor to those type of things. So it came from the community itself, like I said, doing an intense survey and speaking throughout the pandemic um, and prior to, uh, like I said, other community groups. Um, really that was their voices and so in partnership and in listening to them it was just decided that that was a part of the reenactment that we can we don't have to continue to utilize so you have a message for the community yes the message for the community is um, know your history be a part of it and be a part of change and come visit Cloudden. how do you go on from just talking about and thinking about slavery how do you go on and show people what is happening now, not get stuck in the past. This is a perfect dynamic. Myself, as an African-American woman here, working in a location that once was owned by a slave owner, because even though this space in itself was not a plantation, that does not mean the true family did not own plantations. So being able to have opportunities where now, not only am I working here, but I am teaching people about the people who own these spaces. Um, so I was able, given the opportunity to have literacy and comprehension, all of those wonderful things that a lot of my ancestors weren't able to get. And so we see the dynamic of change already occurring, the upward movement of economic and social classism changing for African-American people. And so when we talk about slavery and we say, well, don't get stuck in the past, and you say, well, why won't I get stuck in the past? Why should you? You're not living in the past. You don't have past opportunities. You have present opportunities. Opportunities to be in places like Cliveden and to know about the family and to read about the family and understand the dynamics of a family like that. Uh, or remember and go forward. And not just go forward, but appreciate the opportunity to go forward because those who worked here didn't have that opportunity. And so why be stuck and angry when you can learn and move forward to grow? That was Victoria Best, Blyfden's Engagement Coordinator. I'm Benno Groeneveld. Thanks again to neighbor Bernard Groeneveld for submitting the story to the Germantown Info Hub. What you're hearing right now is just one act from a full lineup of performers for the Johnson House's Juneteenth event, which happened on Saturday, June 17th. This year marked the 158th anniversary of an important event. Major General Gordon Granger, a Union general during the Civil War and U.S. Army officer, announced in Galveston, Texas, that all slaves were now free under the Emancipation Proclamation. This historic announcement was delayed for over two years, and about 250,000 Black people enslaved in Texas were the last in the country to receive notice of the proclamation. 
President Abraham Lincoln had already issued the Emancipation Proclamation, granting freedom to all enslaved people in Confederate states. While Black Texans have already been recognizing the holiday since its inception, formally adopting the day as a federal holiday in 1980, the holiday has gained more traction throughout the rest of the United States in recent years. Largely in part because of the attention to the history that the 2020 and 2021 Black uprisings influenced people to pay attention to. But the Johnson House, which sits at Germantown Avenue in Washington Lane, has been hosting celebrations for the holiday in the neighborhood for almost two decades, making it the oldest Juneteenth festival in Philadelphia. The Germantown Info Hub spoke with some Black neighbors and festival goers about what Juneteenth means to them, and this is what they shared. Sean Williams. We didn't get the promise. There's nothing to celebrate. Now, this is me. I'm trying to take anybody else's holiday from this. There's nothing to celebrate. We ain't done. The promise that was made was not fulfilled. The South grew their wealth. They tripled their wealth. Convict leasing black codes is too much work to do. The Juneteenth to be celebrated and the promise to never be delivered. That's just me. My name is Angela. Juneteenth means that we have a history of um, people that have that we are on their shoulders. They've given us a, um, a path to follow for growth in the community. My name is Michelle Day. Juneteenth means to me knowledge because of we need to know the knowledge of our history. My name is John Evans. Juneteenth means being free. At that time when he signed, uh, when he passed the law and everything else. And it means that because of that, Barack Obama was president of the United States. <laughs> and that's why I'm wearing the hat today, to bring out the memory from that day, from that day in the 1800s, until the day, how far we have gone in this society, and a long ways to go from there. So with Juneteenth is here, I believe that is each year is going to be better and better. So we got a lot, of, we got a lot to fight for right now because they're trying to change everything from cause of June 15th. They're trying to change it back to the way it was back in the 18s and 1700s and everything else. So we just got to keep fighting, fighting for our rights and everything else in this area. Uh, my name is Lindo. Juneteenth means liberation to me, specifically when it comes to black joy. So it's an acting, an acting on just like our happiness without the gaze of whiteness or any oppressors. Uh, my name is Tariq. So it's Juneteenth means to me is a celebration of, of remembrance of uh, freedom. You know, um, our ancestors uh, fought for freedom for a long time. And this is to celebrate that, that journey, remember um, where we've been through, so we know how we can move forward. My name is Pamela. I think it means that it's a celebration for African-American people to come out and join together. We're celebrating from being free from being slaves. Um, it means a lot to me. It, it's because um, they're selling different things on different culture things, and I'm getting educated with different things that I didn't know about. Special thanks to Resolve Philly Community Engagement Editorial Associate Valerie Doray for collecting these interviews. 
And of course, a special thanks to the Johnson House for preserving this tradition. Well, Germantown, it is about that time. If you want to share some story ideas or information with the Germantown Info Hub, you can email us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com. You can also keep up with us on social media at Gtown Info Hub on Twitter and Instagram and Germantown Info Hub on Facebook. Additionally, you can read our stories at germantowninfohub.org. We also encourage listeners to text the equally informed Philly Text Line, another program under Resolve Philly, allowing Philadelphians to access information regarding Philadelphia services. The Equal Info Line is a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that provides subscribers with vetted local news and resources. To ask questions, text the word Equal Info, which is two words, to 215-910-4040. Or type in joinsubtext.com slash equalinfo215 on your web browser. Equally Informed also supplies a community-driven print newsletter available at health centers and libraries all over the city. And that is about it. Once again, I am Rashida Jamu, the community reporter for the Germantown Info Hub. And I'm Maleka Fruin, community organizer. Thank you to our guests for speaking with us today for today's show. And as always, thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging and allowing the Germantown Info Hub to serve you. And until next time, good night, Germantown.